Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together. Stick Together is the only program in the Australian media scene focusing on union news and workers' stories. In this program, we will be looking at some of the reasons the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, is a problem for workers. We look at two issues of workplace safety, the recent decision by the Turnbull government to scrap the road safety remuneration tribunal and a war collapse at a North Melbourne site. Last cab off the rank, in an action-packed show, we remember that on the 21st of April, 1856, the eight-hour day was instituted for the first time in history. An economist and an ecologist are blown by a gust of wind off the top of a skyscraper and are plummeting earthward. The ecologist is panicking, but the economist is resolutely calm. Why are you so calm, asks the ecologist. Because demand will create a parachute, comes the reply. That was Kelvin Thompson, the retiring Labor MP for the seat of Wills. We caught his speech against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, at a meeting held at the Melbourne Town Hall on the 21st of April. First, he gives a little background on the TPP and then has a few important things to say about deregulation of the labour market by using visa workers and the government-assisted Wyala wipeout when it comes to job losses in the steel industry. For the past 30 years, Australia has been undergoing an experiment. We have not been alone. Many other countries have travelled the same path. Free market liberalism. Its hallmarks have been globalisation, privatisation deregulation, free movement of goods and free movement of people. Its advocates said that it would strengthen the economy and make us more resilient to external shocks. But far from making our economy more diverse and resilient, we have become narrow and vulnerable. We have much higher levels of unemployment than we did 30 years ago. We have much higher levels of youth unemployment and much worse long-term unemployment. We have the rise of casual part-time employment and much greater problems of job insecurity and underemployment. It's long been the case that official unemployment figures underestimate the size of the problem because if you work an hour a week you count it as employed. But this has never been as big a deal as it is today with the replacement of full-time jobs by part-time ones. The ABS estimates that over one million Australians are underemployed. We have much larger foreign debt and much larger budget deficits. The distribution of wealth between rich and poor is becoming less equal and the problems generated by frustrated ambition, drugs, crime, mental health, homelessness are on the rise too. But the people who have dug us into this hole want us to keep digging. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is the latest example. When trade deals are signed there is always much fanfare and triumphalism about how good they're going to be. Malcolm Turnbull was doing it in China recently. In 2004, John Howard said the US Free Trade Agreement would add enormous long-term benefits to the Australian economy. But a decade later, the ANU academic Shiro Armstrong studied the agreement and concluded that all it has really done was to divert some trade from other countries. Given this, there should be an independent assessment of all the costs and all the benefits of the Trans-Pacific Partnership before the Parliament votes on it. That assessment should be carried out by the Productivity Commission. Bodies such as the ACCC, the Harper Competition Policy Review, public health experts and the like support this view. 
In the absence of such independent review, the best opportunity for public input and scrutiny comes through the Parliament's Joint Standing Committee on Treaties, of which I am the Deputy Chair. The Trans-Pacific Partnership was tabled in Parliament in February and the Committee considers it until late June unless the uh, Parliament is prorogued in the meantime, which now seems inevitable. We have received many submissions, which is great, and I encourage people to ask to be heard by the Committee at one of our public hearings. Government members always ensure that we get lots of agribusiness representatives speaking in support of trade deals and it's important to get some other voices heard as well. One of the issues that I am looking closely at is Chapter 12, which deals with temporary migrant workers. Now, before we consider Australia's position, it's worth being aware of what other countries have offered up on this front. The United States has offered nothing. Zippo. Because US law precludes any inclusion of migration arrangements in trade agreements. That's right, folks. The United States, land of the free, home of the free market, will not allow trade deals to run its migration policy. And I salute their lawmakers on their ability to work out what is in their country's best interests. Japan specifies that persons must be employed by an overseas company or be in an advanced research position. Malaysia's commitments are confined to professional education and financial services at an advanced level. And Vietnam only allows employees of companies with service contracts in Vietnam. Now, the heading of Chapter 12, Temporary Entry for Business Persons, would have you think that this is going to be about managers or senior executives. But in Australia's case, you would be wrong. Our schedule of commitments includes contractual service providers, which includes trades, professional and technical skills. And the national interest analysis prepared by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade expressly states that a ministerial determination will need to be made under the Migration Act to exempt from labour market testing the contractual service suppliers of those TPP parties to which Australia extended temporary entry commitments. It is clear that the temporary entry provisions include contractual service providers and remove the requirement for labour market testing to establish whether there are Australian workers available. So a further five countries are off the hook in relation to labour market testing, continuing the white anting of labour market testing that we've seen with the Korea and China free trade deals. People act all shocked and horrified when the nature and scale of the exploitation of temporary migrant workers at 7-Eleven is exposed, but that's exactly what will happen if you don't have labour market testing. What is going on is that governments, including ours, are using temporary work visas without local labour market testing as a means of deregulating labour markets. These arrangements create groups of workers with less bargaining power who are more vulnerable because loss of their employment can lead to deportation. I want everyone to reflect on the fact that the TPP will expose Australia directly to ISDS claims from US companies, who I believe to be the world's most litigious, for the first time. And I do want to say, in relation to the issue of uh, government purchasing, uh, this is something that's been in the news after the steel mining company Arium was placed into administration, leaving 7,000 Australian workers in jeopardy, 2,000 of them in Wyala, South Australia. Uh, I remind you that Tony Abbott's opposition constantly claimed that Labor's carbon price would wipe Wyala off the map. It is deeply ironic that it turns out that Wyala workers had much more to fear from a Liberal government. 
Now, when it was proposed that government steel purchases use Australian steel for Australian work, Liberal ministers said, you can't do this, it would be a breach of our trade agreements. In practice, there are various hoops and hurdles that an overseas company would need to go through to get such a decision, and the scope for government action is much larger than Liberal ministers who basically want an excuse to sit on their hands admit. But this situation should serve as a warning to everyone who believes that it is fundamental in a democracy that governments should be able to act in the best interests of their country and respond to the clearly expressed views and values of their people without being fettered and hamstrung by provisions like the government purchasing rules. We hear a lot about red tape getting in the way. I think it's time we started to refer to the blue tape of provisions in trade agreements inserted at the behest of corporations to stop governments doing what they are supposed to do, look after us. It is noteworthy that in the 2004 negotiation of the US FTA, the US, yes, land of the free, home of the free market, exempted its steel industry from the government purchasing rules, but the Howard government did not. So there is a review of the US FTA in May uh, if the government is not in caretaker mode by then, it should use this review to fix up this double standard. And the fact that the TPP has restrictive government purchasing policies is another good reason not to support it. It's noteworthy that the strong resistance to the TPP in the United States itself, including from both the US Democrat presidential contenders. Congress will not consider the TPP implementing legislation until after the US presidential election. It would therefore be absolutely foolish for Australia to rush in ahead of the US Congress, which may not pass it or may change it, and ratify the TPP. And I see this sort of resistance as one element of a quite conspicuous uprising against the big end of town agenda, which includes the free movement of goods and the free movement of people. You can see clear strands of this in the US politics in support for the insurgents, Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. You can see it in the UK in the support for Jeremy Corbyn at one end of the spectrum and UKIP at the other. You can see it in the push for the Brexit, for Britain to leave the European Union. You can see it in the rise of the populist anti-European Union parties in Europe. You don't have to agree with uh, everything that Donald Trump or the UK Independence Party says to realise that the support for them is in significant measure a response to mainstream political leaders and political parties ignoring the views of a significant section of the electorate for years and failing to deliver such fundamental things as job security. You're listening to Stick Together, produced at the 3CR studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Prime Minister Turnbull has been pushing a double dissolution election over anti-union laws for a while now, and just to show how much he cares about real workers, he stood with owner-drivers outside National Parliament saying he was with them when they said they wanted the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal axed. Stick Together went to the Transport Workers Union to find out what is at issue for driver safety when the RSRT is removed. Alison Rudman, Senior Officer at the TWU. This is a bad idea because the Road Safety Watchdog, the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal, was the only body that was able to make legally binding orders to make sure that those big guys at the top of the supply chain, Coles, Westpac, BP, had to pay what it really cost to transport their goods 
safely. So why was it possible for uh, there to be, I mean, like, so you've got the Australian Trucking Association who uh, has, you know, said this is a great thing. And I noticed that the Australian Trucking Association is actually sponsored by people like BP and Volvo and people of that nature. But they put out a press release saying that, literally saying that the RSRT's payment order applied a minimum freight rate to owners, owner-drivers. As a result, owner-drivers were finding themselves unable to compete with the rates offered by other competitors in the market, marketplace. How can this be possible? The first thing to note is that there are bodies out there who have been campaigning because they represent the big end of town to have the tribunal act. These are the same people who say there's no link between rates to pay for truck drivers and safety on our roads and their lives. There's two decades of independent research, coroner's inquiries and parliamentary inquiries that show that they're lying. However, in places like New South Wales, there have been minimum rates in place for owner-drivers since the 1970s, and those drivers continue to get consistent work. What you see from many of those opponents of the tribunal is that they're pushing a big business agenda, and instead they're sitting down and working with the owner-drivers who desperately need some relief on our roads. So why are the owner-drivers working in with those people? Are they hoping to get something other than um, safety from this? You know, because, I mean, what what Turnbull's actually been able to do is get these people to come to Canberra with their trucks, making out that they're the small end of town and that, you know, having this tribunal is flogging them and getting them out of business which is actually just an outrageous lie. As an organisation that represents thousands and thousands of owner-drivers in New South Wales alone, we know that, first of all, it was not all owner-drivers who were opposed to the tribunal. Indeed, there were thousands who spent 15 years of their lives fighting for it because they say, we need a break. However, there was a scare campaign run in the industry, financed by the people who benefit from squeezing, squeezing and squeezing owner drivers that did feed into an overwhelming confusion about the order. Indeed, that was even noted by the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal in their most recent document. What we know is that owner drivers need relief. They need to be some way that they can't be pushed below a minimum floor and that was what this order provided. Right, so actually what's going on is that uh, the big end of town is ensuring that uh, there can't be any uh, minimum uh, rate being paid so that um, they can actually squeeze the drivers further. Absolutely. The people who were out there are advocating for the end of the tribunal and funding the lobbyists trying to get the tribunal ended at the big end of town. They're the Coles, they're the Westpacs who don't want their cash moved safely. It's the BPs who don't want their petrol moved safely. These are the people who benefit when owner-drivers are pushed to the limit. The people who don't benefit when owner-drivers are pushed to the limit are drivers themselves. They are 12 times more likely to be killed at work, most likely to die by suicide, and some are the most likely to go bankrupt. 
Now, Turnbull is quoted as saying in one of his speeches, it is not a tribunal that does anything effective to do with safety. It undermines owner-operators, it undermines small business, and it undermines family businesses. What he's doing is denying that there's actually a connection between having um, minimum rates and safety. So, obviously, as you've said, there's independent uh, investigations to show that that's actually untrue. It's also common sense. Well, yeah, when I was going to say it is common sense, isn't it? <laughs> if you're paid by the box, there's pressure to overload that box, that truck. If you're paid by the troop, no matter how tired, how exhausted you are, you know that you need to keep those wheels turning so that you're able to feed your own kids some of the food that's in the back of your truck. That's common sense. It's also proven by over 20 years of cross-party parliamentary inquiries of these coronial inquests and of academic studies. And so the people who say there's no link between pay for truck drivers and safety on our roads, they're lying. Now, um, people have mentioned things like the Mona Vale incident, which happened in 2013, when a fuel tanker rolled and exploded into flames and killed two people. That's the sort of things you're talking about, aren't you? We are, we are. What's not well known is that actually this tribunal was looking into several different parts of the road transport industry. They were looking into how can we get some standards in place for armoured car drivers who have seen the push to get their work done by less people on their crew in unsecure cars and have seen actual deaths as a result. You see people there who are working with gas and fuel and oil. You had workers coming forward and saying... That entire fleet was grounded after the Mona Vale crash because of the fact that there'd been such systematic poor maintenance. And we know that as a group of workers, we need a way to set standards across the industry. So the big guys up the top, people like BP who have the money, can't force us into a race to the bottom. Now, the crossbenchers uh, senators actually supported this. Is there a sort of a lack of intelligence being applied? Uh, is that something that the uh, union, I mean, the union spends all its time working on these types of things, but uh, people come in who appear to not be educated enough to understand the process and the systems that are required to keep safety or workplaces safe? Absolutely. As a union, we've spent 20 years looking at where is it that drivers in the community get the best safety outcomes. And we see it's in places where there are minimum rates to pay, where people know that they're able to cover their cost of operating and pay themselves a basic wage. And so it's really important when looking at what happens with the order and looking at other opportunities to hold those big clients at the top of the supply chain accountable that it's done by people who have, A, an understanding of what's really happening, and B, aren't out for some other big corporate interest. They're there for the owner-drivers in the community who's affected by this. Now, the pictures of Turnbull have him standing beside workers as if uh, he's the mate of workers. Now, quite clearly, we're leading into an election and... uh, He's really, this This is just actually another example of the present government kowtowing to the big end of town. Is that right? Absolutely. There is no mistaking it. Follow the money. Malcolm Turnbull acts the Road Safety Tribunal so that his 
big donors wouldn't have to pay what it costs to transport their goods safely. You see the same firm arguing in the Road Safety Remuneration Tribunal against bodies like Coles having to pay what it costs to move their freight that employed many of the now Liberal members of Parliament. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. It isn't news that the Hayden Royal Commission into Unions has been targeting the CFMEU and that there has been efforts to criminalise unscheduled union visits to worksites to check on safety. But this week in Melbourne, a wall fell onto a footpath, narrowly missing pedestrians, and as this account by CFMEU official given on 3CR's Concrete Gang attests, there are more questions to be answered than union involvement. Well, basically on a Tuesday morning, uh, I was with my colleague uh, driving off to a job over in Seddon, and uh, basically up Queensbury Street on the left, uh, I saw an excavator there with no public protection, no traffic management, no nothing, then they were hoeing into this old pub. So I pulled up, as we do, and uh, basically introduced myself, uh, and a gentleman by the name of Sam, looks like was representing sustainable demolition, obviously introduced myself, and uh, yeah, just asked him a few questions, Re amenities, he looked in the air and looked at me and he said, what do you want to know that for? Well, I want to know that you guys can go in there and do what you got to do, have some smoke, have some lunch and uh, relieve yourselves when it gets to that stage of the day and uh, basically pointed in the sky. Then I asked him about the parts he sorted. Uh, he had no idea. Which uh, is about asbestos. Parts exactly six, right. Uh, traffic management, gantry, covered walkway and just had no idea. So basically I did what I had to do. I phoned the uh, government body WorkSafe to their credit, they were there within about half an hour, but that's when it all stopped. The inspector came down, obviously uh, told them a few home truths. Uh, I didn't know at that stage there was uh, friable asbestos, but when I made the call out, obviously I had to let them know that I had my concerns. So you've got a school next door to them, uh, you've got a church across the road, you had our rank and filers working across the road on that uh, C-bus job there, had you Simon, so basically there was a lot of concerns there, so... Uh, I had to do what I had to do and ceased work. And um, at that stage, WorkSafe were there within within half an hour. And that's when the fun started. So uh, basically, uh, a few of their cronies come around. Obviously, the size of me, they probably thought, uh, we better just prop and just uh, listen to what he's got to say. But when WorkSafe came down, uh, they could see as much as anyone else could see that what they were doing was not kosher. So what did WorkSafe do? Did they stop? They tell them to stop their work? Or? They stopped. They had uh, a meeting with them. Obviously, uh, they palmed me off uh, as an official of the union, so uh, I don't know if I stepped in horseshit or what, but, uh, yeah, they just give me the arse. And, yeah, WorkSafe did what they had to do, but uh, unfortunately, uh, with these improvement notices they issued, I found out the next day um, that the same inspector was there supervising them going ahead and uh, bowling over this building without the appropriate gantries, uh, uh, traffic management, the signage, the amenities, part six order. It's just a dog's breakfast. 
So actually, so next day is when it all turned to tears, wasn't it, Squeak? Well, it all turned to tears. Um, unfortunately, I got a phone call uh, at about 9, 9.30. Clarkie had a phone call from uh, the shop steward across the road and basically uh, letting him know that the wall had collapsed. Uh, he spoke to me. We uh, got in the car and went down there, and, yeah, that's when the fiasco started. Debris, dust, uh, we had... Uh, the demo guys all on the street, no uh, traffic management, no nothing, trying to clean up the scene of the crime. So, un-Australian, un-Australian. And uh, apparently it was a woman just went past with a, with a baby and a push it just seconds before it all collapsed. And how lucky is she and the little baby? Mate. That's the worst thing about it. And it should have been prevented. The day I came there and I stopped all works, they should have not let them under work safes. Uh, guidance, WorkSafe supervision, go into the next day and start bowling it. Before we finish, we would like to salute the workers who fought and succeeded in establishing the eight-hour day in Melbourne on the 21st of April 1856. Many of these men are buried in Melbourne Central Cemetery. And uh, this excerpt is of historian Peter Love. It was taken from a cemetery stroll to honour these men. In case you can't read it, it says, yeah, this monument is erected to the memory of James Galloway by eight hours tradesmen and others for the valuable services he rendered in establishing the eight-hour system in this colony. Um, and that was the term all used from the very beginning, the eight-hours system. It wasn't, it wasn't originally called the eight-hour day, the eight-hour system. Uh, and there was an elaborate argument about the, both the political and moral economy of, and for the benefits of the eight-hour day, both in terms of the, you know, the sort of life's daily diurnal cycle as well as the life cycle of workers and their families, but also the role that that would allow them to play in the development and expansion of a civilised politi- and democratic political community. And when they'd won it uh, in, on the 21st of April and made their triumphal march throughout the city uh, visiting other sites to ensure compliance. It wasn't just a triumphal march, it was also to make sure that other building sites around the city were complying with this recently agreed eight-hour system. And of course their problems were um, that Cornish on the um, Parliament House uh, and Holmes on the Eastern uh, Market site, uh, they were the two recalcitrant bosses and so they, uh, they then put the pressure on them. But interestingly enough what happened was it was the employers who equally put the pressure on them because they, the other employers who had willingly agreed to this, could see very clearly that if there were going to be two major um, contractors undercutting, yes. you know, working the 10-hour day rather than the 8-hour day, yes. that this was going to undermine the whole system. Mm. And so you had all but those two employers, you know, ganging up. Uh, everyone else was ganging up on them, you know, you know contractors and uh, unionists. And it was also fascinating that as soon as this got underway, this agreement was established, of course it was a huge boon to the formation of eight-hour labour leagues, as they were called, in each of the trades. So most of the building trades, within a matter of a week or ten days, had established their own eight-hour labour leagues, which were the precursors of their trade unions. That's it for Stick Together. Thanks for you for listening. Thanks to Kelvin Thompson, MP, Alison Rudman, Squeak from the CFMEU and Peter Love for talking to us today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. 
The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.